Well, it is my great honor and privilege to speak to you this morning. I have <clears throat> I have taken a few weeks off, and now I'm uh, speaking again, and so it's good to be back. We're uh, going to be starting off a series today, but this really isn't part one. This is really more like part zero. And the reason why I say it's part zero is that before we go into what we're going to look at in this series, which I'm going to describe in just a minute, we have to know who the person of Christ is and why he's important and what that kind of means, what it means for Jesus to be Lord in Christ. In this series, we're going to be looking at how Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Um, many of you, if you grew up in Sunday school, you might have heard a term called a theophany, and that's just an appearance of Christ or an appearance of God somehow. Um, in the Old Testament scriptures, that is before we get to Matthew, um, anything left of that in the Bible, anytime that happens, that might be called theophany. But before we start to look at some of those and look at some of the ways that Christ Jesus is kind of pointed to from the Old Testament, we must first understand who he is. And so the New Testament gives us a revelation of who Jesus is. And I want to, before we go into seeing him in the Old Testament, I want to kind of just look at what the New Testament apostles say about this man, Jesus, right from the beginning. And so, um, this morning is Acts 2, 1 through 38. This is the longest passage I've ever preached through. And so, uh, if you wish to pray for me while I'm preaching that God would let us get out on time, I'd much appreciate that as well. But today we're speaking about elemental Christology. That's, that's a big phrase, but it's not that hard. Elemental just means an element. What, is, what makes up Christology? And Christology is simply, what is the doctrine of Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What does it mean for him to be the Christ? What is this idea of the word Christ? And what does all this mean? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, in my opinion, there are many issues that are plaguing the church today. And, you know, I don't need to tell you that it's bad. You all know that it's bad. There's youth leaving the church. There's rampant divorce just as much in the church as in the culture. I don't want to focus on negative issues, but I would, I would beg the question, what is the source of those issues? And in my opinion, it, the source of those issues is not simply those issues in themselves. We don't need to continue to focus on the family. We need to focus on Jesus Christ and as we see him in the glory of who he is, we will be enamored with that man to the point where we are continually striving to put to death those sins which cause those issues. So the societal issues at work in the church in the West today, both America and Europe, those issues are not going to be solved by focusing on the problems. They're going to be, focused, they're going to be solved by focusing on the man of Jesus Christ. And so the only biblical way is not to cut off leaves, but rather to get to the root. And so this morning, I want to talk about what I believe is to be the root of the church. That is the only thing that we are supposed to be proclaiming. It's not about how to have a better marriage. It's not about how to be the best you or to have your best life now. It's only about exalting the man Christ Jesus. And from that place of exalting him, being enamored with who he is so that you know who he is, so you can describe him to others. And so as we're going through this series of seeing Christ in the Old Testament, well, it, you must understand who you are seeing to be amazed when you see him in the Old Covenant. And so, we're, we're 
at the same time, our church over the next nine months is really going to be focusing on some evangelistic efforts. And because of that, we want to, I want to help you see a few different ways how you can preach through a passage or um, read the scripture with someone and explain it while it's happening. And hopefully you'll be able to see me do that this morning and um, that'll be helpful for you. So my main question this morning is, what does it mean that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? And we're, we're going to look at that this morning through the passage of Acts 2. We're going to talk about the context of it. But this is the key verse of that passage. Peter concludes his argument and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Many of us, we love Acts 2. I personally am a big fan of, of the tongues of the Spirit. And God is very gracious in starting off his church with the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit and supernatural signs and wonders. A sound comes from heaven and they all speak in tongues. We're going to look at that in just a second. But the main message that comes out of that experience is not about necessarily about getting into tongues. It's about the gospel. And the gospel is proclaimed by Peter. And this is the first time that Peter is giving a public witness of taking old covenant scriptures and applying them to Christ. And so before we actually begin this series, the reason this is part zero today is that you need to see that this is a biblical idea. This isn't John Weiss has a really great idea that the old covenant talks about Jesus. The, the New Testament apostles and the writers of those books, their principal uh, manuscript for writing the books, the context in which the New Testament is written and therefore understood is the Old Covenant Scriptures or the Old Testament. And so if you don't understand anything about the Old Testament, you'll get very little out of the New Testament. You'll still get something, but it, it needs to be put in the context of what the Old Testament says about Jesus. Before we continue, I just want to make a clarifying statement. This is a very sometimes a very tricky phrase in this verse that, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The New Testament is clear. The rest of the New Testament wars against the idea that Jesus has ever changed. Paul's doctrine was built on the foundation that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it, Peter does not mean that God has made him Lord, that God has made Jesus Lord through the resurrection and the ascension. Rather, he just means that he's made it apparent or he's made it known. That is, by these actions, it's been evident to us who this person is. And so, that's very important as we uh, begin to dive in. So, that's all just by way of introdu introduction. And now we're going to kind of take apart what we just heard uh, Catherine read. We're going to look at the different sections in this chapter. Um, but before this chapter happens, there's a little bit of history. Jesus had just ascended in Acts 1. He had left this earth. He went up into the heavens. He passed through the heavens and, and left. The disciples were staring at him. They see an angel and say, don't, don't stare into the sky. You've got work to do. And the apostles then find a replacement for Judas. And we're not going to look at that replacement. But if you want to see Peter's first public, uh, non-public, but Peter's first time, in applying Old Covenant scriptures to the New Testament reality of Jesus. It's, he, he begins to say, we need a replacement for Judas because Judas has gone off into his own way. And Peter then begins to 
uh, he starts off the New Testament practice of, of the apostles, not of Jesus doing this, but of the apostles using Old Covenant scriptures to talk about Jesus Christ. And so it, it, there's even one example before this, but we're not going to dwell on that this morning. Finally, all these, after they choose Matthias by lot, there's this upper room prayer meeting where the disciples and plus the family of Jesus and those who were with them, about 120 persons, they go up into this prayer room that's on apparently just an upper room. It might, maybe was the second or third floor. It's just not on the first floor. And um, they go in there and they, and they begin to pray. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out. It says that there uh, were, were tongues of fire that were resting on each one and they began, began to speak with tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And so there's this mighty rushing wind that takes place and all the Jews who are around this building, it's so loud that this, this worship and this exalting of, of God that is happening through the outpouring of the Spirit, this is, this is such an event that the people around them begin to uh, take notice that there's this very large disturbance. There's been this mighty rushing wind. They didn't have F-16s back then. It would have been very scary. Um, and, and not only that, but there are these people who are uh, speaking in tons of different languages. And the main, the main way that Peter begins to speak is by them asking questions. So the Jews who were around there, they ask questions. And then, then comes Peter's response and finally the conclusion, or what happens because of Peter's response. The, the key jumping off point here for Peter is that the, the Jews in, in uh, 2.13 say, what is the meaning of this? As in, they're saying, what do these things mean? And so Peter is answering that question the entire time in this chapter. Everything that Peter says is him answering the question of the Hellenistic Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time, those who were of the covenant and those who were in the family of Israel. He's answering the question to them, what do these things mean? So Peter's response in Acts 2, 17 through 21 quotes, Joel 2, uh, 28 through 32. And so there's been this outpouring of the Spirit, and Peter then says, this is what was promised by the prophet Joel, that God would pour forth his Spirit before the last days or before the day of the Lord. But And, and it was apparent to all of them, and Peter said, this is, this is what you're experiencing. This is what you're seeing take place. This is the outpouring of the Spirit. And so this had been a, an old covenant promise that God was going to place his Spirit on his people in such a way that they would be able to be his people and that he would be their God. Now, the immediate question that would come up after Peter said that God has poured out his Spirit is, well, if that's the case, then why did not the entire city of Jerusalem receive the Spirit? Why was it just this small group of people? And so when Peter makes a transition, he to, to men of Israel listen to these words, he's not making a transition to talk about something else. He wasn't simply using the day of Pentecost as a way to preach Christ. He was explaining all of that in the context of who Jesus is. And so... Peter's response that he then turns to uh, in, in verse, verses uh, 17 through 21 and after, he's not, he's not diverting from explaining what's going on. He's explaining what's going on by talking about the person of Jesus. 
And so Peter's transition that we're going to look at later is not a, it's not a change of topic. It's just another added emphasis. So the Father has promised to pour forth the Spirit before the day of the Lord. The Spirit's been poured out on these group of people. Now, why has it only been poured out on this small group instead of all the city of Jerusalem? Before we look at what the Christ and and what it means for Jesus to be both Christ and Lord, we have to understand what those two phrases mean. And the word Christ is a very, very simple phrase. It uh, is just a Greek word that means uh, Messiah, or if you were a Hebrew speaker, you might pronounce it as Mashiach. And and Christ is, 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 is Messiah, and Messiah just simply means anointed. But anointed doesn't necessarily mean what we in the charismatic church might call it. We, we don't talk about someone who's, you know, anointed. Um, we, if we hear a powerful sermon or, or a powerful uh, worship service, we might call that an anointed worship service. But it's here when, when I'm talking about Jesus being anointed, it simply means designated for the execution of a function. It doesn't necessarily have to mean, well, you know, I really felt the spirit when he talked or, or whatever. It, it just simply means designated for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is a theme, a major theme, the major theme of the Old Covenant. And this, this purpose is probably the most grand purpose in all of Scripture. The purpose for which Jesus was anointed is to be the executor of the promises to be the king of the Jews. Hannah's prophecy in 1 uh, Samuel 2 says that the Lord will raise up his horn, and that is Old Covenant language. It's, we don't use that in English. It doesn't. We don't have horns. But th- that's just Old Covenant language. There's, there's this symbol of authority on, on the Christ. And so there's this, there's this emerging theme throughout the Old Covenant prophecies that really, you know, it starts really in the garden, but Hannah's making it really clear there's going to be an anointed one who sits on a throne, and she's going to rejoice. Saul in 1 Samuel 12 is called the Lord's anointed. He's he's not, he later is not a, a righteous man. He's just simply the king. And so anointed doesn't necessarily mean righteous. It simply means in the context of the Old Covenant, anointed to sit on the throne of David. God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, there are really two primary things to that covenant. The first is that there would always be one of David's seed who would sit on that throne that that God said. And the other part is that the kingdom that David has, David's kingdom, that that seed would then sit on, that kingdom will go throughout the earth and it will not fade away. It will not be removed as in no one will conquer it and it will exist forever. And so these are the two elements of what the requirement for the king of the Jews is, that that there needs to be this expanding kingdom and that one of David's seed, that is those who come forth from David, David's children, and those who come forth from those children, one of them will sit on this throne. And so the covenant promises of God in the, in the old covenant, they, they are pointing to the, the fulfillment of there needs to be a king. And so... Here, what it means for Jesus to be the Christ is simply that he would be the the king of the Jews. And so Peter continues in Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. And then he spends a significant amount of time 
describing Jesus as the one who fulfills all the covenant promises of the requirements of the son of David. That is, he is the only one who it's possible for him to fulfill these, these requirements. And so again, this kingdom has to never end. It can't be conquered and it can't fade away. And also that there needs to be someone who's going to sit on this throne, a real person who's going to sit on this throne and that throne's going to exist forever and increase throughout the earth. And so this is, this is a very tough order. Uh, everyone who has ever sat on a throne in David's experience, he's seen them die, the nations around them. Every king that was raised up, God eventually tore down. And so David is, you know, he's looking for the fulfillment of this promise. We're going to reread Acts 2, 22 through uh, 31 and, or sorry, through, yes, through 31. And I know we're reading a lot of scripture, but honestly, scripture is a lot better than me. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again and putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Peter then explains what the meaning of that phrase is in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, why is Peter saying that? Because again, the requirements of the king of Israel or the king of the Jews, for him to fulfill the covenant promises to David, there has to be someone who doesn't die. And that's never happened before. Jesus was resurrected and the apostles, the reason they were designated as the, the 12 apostles and the, way, the, the reason some branches of the church talk about 12 apostles versus, versus different apostles, that Paul's an untimely born apostle, he, they're, they're, the main function of the apostles was they were witnesses of his resurrection. And that was the principal claim of the new covenant church, this movement away from Judaism that's being explained in this passage. They were the ones who had seen Jesus resurrected, and that's what Peter's arguing here for. In verse 30, it's, Peter explains what David's seeing, and so because David, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Many people have been raised by the dead. Jesus, when he was living on this earth, he raised up his friend Lazarus. Uh, and Lazarus, um, you know, he was, he was raised up from the dead, but he wasn't resurrected. He died again. And his tomb if I was to follow in the tradition with Peter, his tomb is with us to this day. We don't know where it is, but it's somewhere in Israel. And 
what Peter is saying here is that Jesus Christ was not simply raised from the dead. He was resurrected and given a glorified body. And that resurrection that takes place is the sign that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill this this requirement for sitting on the throne of David. That is that Jesus is the son of God. And so here, David says that Jesus is the Christ and God has confirmed through the resurrection that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Revelation 1.18, Jesus describes himself, behold, I was dead and now I am alive forevermore. Jesus Christ will never die again. His body will never go to death. He has been resurrected from the dead and he's, he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And so here, the, the principal message for Jesus to be the Christ it simply means that he is the king of Israel. Now, there's other things that we can talk about today, but Israel doesn't recognize Christ as their king, and we can get into that at a different date. But here, when you ask someone, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? They usually just answer, well, you know, what does Christ mean? Well, it means he's Jesus. And so, you, you know, you've developed this circular, well, yes, we know Jesus is Jesus, but what for for Jesus to be the Christ, that is the anointed Messiah, it means that he is simply the only one who can fulfill the, th- the, the promises of God to David and, the, and Israel uh, to, to establish them a king who would live and reign forever. And so that's, that's the first half of what we're looking at this morning. Jesus is the Christ. He's the only one who who can fulfill the requirements. He's the only one who's been designated as the righteous seed to come forth through all the covenant promises, um, specifically the one given to David. And so what is this element of the Lord talking about? Well, you know, the phrase Jesus Christ, our Lord, or Jesus Christ, the Lord, it appears over a hundred times in the New Testament scriptures. Other other phrases, very similar phrases, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Um, so it's either Jesus Christ, the Lord, or Christ the Lord or Jesus the Lord. Very very seldom are one of those two elements, Christ or Lord, missing from being attached to Jesus' name in the New Testament epistles and, uh, and letters. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord? Well, if you ask someone today in the church or, or in the world, if, it, if you described what the Lord means, well, we all know from you know, medieval language, a Lord is just someone who's a master. That is someone who we should serve. And um, it means that, you know, that Jesus being, Jesus being Lord means I should like live a righteous life and, and be, uh, you know, have fidelity towards him, or I shouldn't run away from him and serve other gods or, or something like that. It, most people just simply mean that Jesus should run your life and you shouldn't run your life. But what, what Peter means by saying that know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ is a totally different picture than Jesus just simply being a master or a good teacher or someone who we should serve with our, with our life and our lifestyle. And so having just laid out that, that Jesus is the Christ, Peter now turns to unifying this idea that Jesus is also the Lord. In, in Judaism, there were two competing notions of what were going to take place before the uh, end of all things. The first thing was that Israel needed a Messiah. They had, the, king, the, king, uh, the kingdom had fallen into ruins. Uh, 
David didn't have someone on the throne. The, the king of Israel at the time that Jesus was living, uh, Herod and his family, those were, they were not part of David's line. And so there was a competing kingdom that was established in Israel at the time. And that was a, that was a warring kingdom against the purposes of God. And so there's, there's this one element, Israel needs a king, Israel needs a Messiah. But there was this other element in the Old Covenant that God needs to come and be with his people. And you see that in the way that Moses sets up the law. He, he, they put the tabernacle right in the center of all the people and they bring the, the Levites there and they come and worship and serve. And, and so that God would be in the midst of his people and God's promise when he established the people of Israel through Moses was that I will be your God and you will be my people. And that theme that God needs to dwell in the midst of his people, that Yahweh himself is going to come and live in the midst of his people, that's a separate theme from Israel needs a king. And so in Judaism, those two ideas were totally separate. And there, were, there may have been hints here and there, but they were separate themes. And so in Ezekiel, you, Ezekiel starts off in the book with this elaborate vision. He sees into the heavens and there's just terrible and wonderful things going on there. But by the end of the book, he describes this new temple, Ezekiel's temple, which is never built. And it then it, it concludes the book with Ezekiel saying, this temple is not a building, but rather he will be Emmanuel, God will dwell with his people. And so there's this, there's this theme that Yahweh needs to come and dwell, but there's a problem that these people have. These people are evil and Yahweh is holy and righteous and good. And so so over and over again to Moses, God tells them, uh, don't come up too close. Don't approach the, the holy place without making atonement. You can only come in one time a year. If, if you do come out, my holiness will break out against you and you'll be, you'll be consumed. And so there's this problem. How is God going to come and dwell amongst an evil people? Uh, over and over again, year after year, Israel has not been a righteous people. And, and up until Jesus comes on the scene, there's no hope for righteousness. They had kind of seen, you know, their moral, moral decay that takes place between Malachi and Matthew. And so there's, this, there's these two separate ideas. But here in this passage, the whole point of this sermon today is that, Jesus, that Peter says these two ideas have been both fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so in verses 32 through 35, Peter brings the argument completely full circle. He says, he continuing to talk to these Hellenistic Jews who were in Jerusalem for the, for the uh, Passover feast. He says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. He took his stand with the apostles, remember? And that the apostle just means that they've witnessed and they have some revelation on Jesus being raised from the dead. And combining raising from the dead, he then combines that with the ascension in verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the, into the heavens, but he himself says, <clears throat> The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this is Peter's entire point, not just the resurrection, but also the ascension. David did not ascend into the heavens, he says in verse 34, but rather it was, he was speaking of the Christ. And so Peter's conclusion here 
is he applies Psalm 110, this, this quote that is in capitals here, he applies this to the person of Jesus. And he follows Jesus' own tradition in Matthew 22, 41 through 45. Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and Jesus is asked a question and then he retorts and asks the Pharisees a question. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a, asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him the Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. The question that Jesus gives to these Pharisees actually brings them into the mystery of who Jesus Christ is as both Lord and Christ. In verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. That's because in Judaism, this idea of the king and and the Lord or Yahweh were totally separate. And so this is Peter's entire point in this passage. In Joel 2, 28 slash Acts 17, it says that Yahweh is going to pour forth the spirit. But in Acts 2, 33, it says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, this is talking about Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is saying in this passage, in Joel 2, that Yahweh is going to pour forth the Spirit. And Peter's now saying that Jesus has poured forth the Spirit. Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And so in conclusion, the, the message of, of Peter's sermon this, that morning is that Yahweh is going to pour forth the Spirit, and, but Jesus has poured forth the Spirit. Well, what's the problem with that? In Joel 2.32, it says, and it shall come to, to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, the name that they just had crucified was this same Jesus. They just killed the name that is going to, to save them. And so there's a terrible dilemma, and this is why they're pierced to the core, because they realize they've just killed Yahweh the one who was supposed to come and live in their midst and be in their presence. And so there's a terrible problem. They don't know what to do. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the core or pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brethren, what must we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a biblical understanding of what Jesus says in uh, both John 13 and other places that unless you believe that Jesus is I am, that is the one that Moses asked the question, who shall I say sent me? Yahweh says, I am, tell them I am sent you. And Jesus calls himself I am, and he says, unless, in, unless you believe that I am, you will not be saved. And so it is a salvation issue that you understand that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This is not just a side issue uh, or some higher theolo uh, theological importance. This is the only message that the church has to say when we look at, at what the church is mainly about in the, the grand scheme of the American scene, the state of the pulpit, if you will. There are many, many opinions of who Christ is, but this is the main thing that's important for your life and 
for those who you might witness to. If, if they do not come away from your discipleship or your encounter with them, knowing that Jesus is Christ and Lord, that he's both Yahweh and the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to mankind, if you don't understand both of those things, then, then it's, you're in a very precarious situation, according to John 13. So Paul's doctrine also agrees with Peter. It's not just Peter making this argument. In Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, remember, we talked about the Lord being confirmed through his ascension, seating at the right hand of the Father, and then pouring forth the Spirit. If you confess Jesus with your mouth as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So Romans 10, 13 quotes Joel 2, 32. It says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul agrees with Peter, this is Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And, and it's important for us to, to realize that. This is not just the message of Peter. That they don't deviate from this, the rest of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, all of the Gospels, we're not going to touch them this morning, but all of the Gospels actually mention these things. Um, remember how we talked about these ideas of the Christ and the Son of God or, or Yahweh being separate? Well, you know, Nathaniel's revelation when when Jesus tells Nathaniel that he, you know, he saw him under the fig tree, Nathaniel gets revelation from the Father about who this person is who's talking to him. And he says that, uh, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And uh, same happens in Matthew 2 that there's the king of the Jews, and then out of Egypt I have called my son. The, the idea being that the central message of the New Testament is the marriage of these two different important major themes in, in the Old Covenant being fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so um, I, I would pray this morning that if you do not believe on Jesus Christ as both Lord and Christ, that I, I plead with you to be born again and to confess him as Lord and Savior and so with that, we're, we're going to move to a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that Jesus would be made glorious in our eyes, that he would not be just an element of Christianity, that he would be the focus of our life, that we would love and adore the resurrection and the ascension, and that we would know all of these things have taken place through the confirmation of the Holy Spirit and the clear witness of your word. We ask you, God, that you would convert us more fully to the gospel, that we would love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We ask these things for the glory of your Son. Amen.